Welcome to the Once and Future Author Podcast. I'm Stephanie, and I'm so delighted today to be joined by author Grace Salmon. Grace is the author of The Eaves, and you will definitely want to visit her at gracesalmon.net, where you can sign up for all sorts of giveaways. I saw a five-book giveaway right now for your book club, so you'll Indeed. want to write right over there and, and check that out at gracesalmon.net. But Welcome, Grace. Thanks for joining me. Oh, Stephanie, thank you for having me. It's an honor. You do such amazing work out here for authors and readers. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be able to, to bring great writers to people who are just lapping it up. And uh, thank you so much for being here. And what a book. What a book. Tell me a little bit to get us started. Give us a little overview of the book and how you got started writing. So the Eves is about the psychologically complex Jessica. She's eh, almost 60, and she's really let go of her career, her ambition, her looks, which is a horrible thing that we say about women, by the way. But she's really let go of so much. She's living in a half-renovated townhouse. She has never finished her doctoral dissertation. And she's really hiding from the world. And she's hiding behind a very big lie. And she has a very bossy friend named Sonia. And Sonia one day says to her, Jessica, this hiding from the world has to stop. And Sonia introduces her to this group of old women. They're from 70 to 94. And they're living in a collaborative community up top the beautiful Chesapeake Bay. And she says, you need to write the stories of these old women because they are making their mark on the world. And through the interviews that Jessica does, everybody's story changes. Jessica's life changes. And each of the older women's stories change as well. Oh, what a fabulous premise. I love that. And uh, it kind of reminds us all, uh, no hiding, <laughs> you know, live your authentic life. And we're never done. And I think that's really the premise that I want people to come away with. The book was inspired by a couple of things which you asked about. Many years ago, I heard a John Prine song sung by Bette Midler, and it's Hello in There, Hello. And it talks about old people and how people pass them by as if they don't care. And they just stop and stare. And nobody bothers to stop and say, hello in there hello. And that was very haunting to me for decades. And then as I began to age myself, I thought, oh, what does this mean to be giving up my educational consulting firm, which I had had for almost 30 years? I traveled for 200 days a year. So what did it really mean to give that up, to be the parent, not of little children, to be a parent of adult children? And what was it like to no longer have those roles of either educational consultant, mom, daughter? So I really began to play with all of those things and all of a sudden the eaves came. Oh, I love that. And, and as a person myself, whose kids are you know about to fly the coop and all those other things, lots to learn. There is a lot to learn. And I know that that was very hard when my kids really sprung the wings that I had trained them to have. And it's a very different role of parenting and, uh, and being with your kids. So part of the story talks about it. The Eves is the story of the conversations we wish we would have with our parents if they were still here and wish we could have with our children if they were ready to listen. 
<laughs> because I certainly know I was not ready to listen. And uh, I'll leave that at that. <laughs> Could I pass it around to my kids so that they get the message? I think so. You know, I, I would say the audience for my book is people 45 and above, but I love it when I get younger readers who say, oh my gosh, this is great. It's, it's a roadmap for where I'm going, or it's going to help me talk to my mom, or, you know, it's just a good story. Right. right. Oh, I love that. And thank you for who should we buy this book for? Because that's always a big question for me, you know. So this is a gift book. Who is this a gift for? Um, I'm looking behind you, and besides a beautiful poster of your book, I see a beautiful quilt. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I am so lucky. I have a wonderful group of beta readers, and I, I always encourage authors to have a beta group, to also have developmental editors if you like working more one-on-one. -on -one. But when any of us give our book to the world, I always say it's the most naked thing I do. You know, it's a very vulnerable, vulnerable place. And there's a scene in the book, and actually it happens at three different times, where people come to leave their mark on the land. And the way that plays out in the very beginning of the book is that there is a harvest scene. And these kids from inner city Washington, D.C. come down to this place where the older women live and other people live as well. And they harvest the land. And at the end of the night, they come into the barn and they dip their hand in paint and then they leave their mark on the world. And that scene is repeated at several points in the book, but Jessica, the main character, can't do it. And that bossy friend I talked about a minute ago, she said, I saw you did not leave your hand in the paint and this hiding stops. So getting back to my beta group, they were absolutely fabulous and we'll go this way. When they read my book, they all dipped their hand in the paint and left their mark on the quilt. And then they wrote a quote from the book. Oh, wow. And when we sat down to do the real discussion of the final or close to final draft, which didn't turn out to be the close to final draft. <laughs> they, they literally handed me the quilt. So of course I was in tears because of the symbolism, but then they wrapped me in it. And they said, and tonight we will discuss your book. Oh was, my God. Um, still okay. gives me chills. Oh yes, absolutely. And I'm loving this for process. You know, I, I was just giving a workshop yesterday about getting beta readers and how important it is to the development of your book and how to involve them, you know, in the process so that they are actual stakeholders in the success of the book. Now, you've obviously, you didn't even come to my workshop yesterday, but you heard every bit of it. And uh, I, I, I'll have to bring you in as a guest next time because you're like becoming the poster child here. I would love to, but I think that is, you know, people frequently ask, what are some of the key things in being an author? And, you know, I've written fiction and I've written nonfiction. So my first three books were solidly based research books and education. This is very, very different. And the beta group couldn't have been more important to me. There's a character that's talked about in chapter one. He's talked about I was done. My beta group kept saying, you never got back to him. And I was like, well, he's not important to the story. They were like, he is pivotal. And I didn't see that at all. I just did not see at all. And to the point where he's referenced in the beginning, but he's just like, 
He's referenced, period. He has no character. He has no name. He has no country of origin. And there I am thinking the book is done. And I went, oh, my goodness. Of course, I now see it. But they had to beat me up over it. They really did. Because I, I kept pushing back. Oh, he's not important. He's not important. So that was a big beta group moment. Uh, so I'm so glad that you tell people that because the story gets so much better. Right. right. And you're, you're obviously open to suggestion. And that's a huge thing with inviting beta readers along for the journey is that you need to be willing to listen to them. It's one thing to invite them, but it's another thing to listen to them. Um, I love your example of how it so improved the book, but I can hear the fight back. No, no, no. It's fine the way it is. Uh, I've told people to get an odd number of beta readers in case- yes. There's um, a discrepancy. Did you have any discrepancies with yours? Maybe uh, two voting for one and one for another? No, they had different opinions about things um, and they all saw things differently. For example, there's a three big plot twists in the book, like tear jerky plot twists. And there's this big event that happens towards the end of the book. And I kind of wrap it up. And I think I'm done. And they were like, so how did Sonia react to that? And I was like, well, I really didn't think about that. And they were like, and, and, and did Roy have a reaction? So I had to rewrite that as well, because again, the story gets better. So I, I'm totally, I probably did go to your workshop. I, uh, <laughs> I, I agree with you on the odd number. The other thing, particularly for me, is to have a diverse group. In my book, I have Black people, white people, I have Native American people, I have a Latinx uh, family, I have a lesbian couple, and I had to make sure that, especially as a Caucasian writer, and especially today, I made my best effort, first of all, to do my research to be authentic and to reflect the people I know and love, but also to make sure that I had other voices hearing the voices I was creating. And um, every time I say that, I also want to make sure that nobody under thinks that they're a monolithic group. Just like I have these older women in the group, I would hate to say I gave this book to one old woman and they said, oh yeah, that's perfect. All old women speak that way. Or that you know, I gave it to my two African-American girlfriends and say, is this okay? And just because they think it's okay or tweak it, whatever, I don't want them to feel that they also speak for all African-American women. Right. No, that's, that's awesome. Great understanding for us to have that, you know, you need to have representation. I always say it would be nice if your beta group has, you know, your target reader, but not to be so narrow about what that target reader may be. And if you're going to, especially like you described, you're speaking in the voices of these different people whose life experience is not your own. Exactly. And I think your point is very well taken in that while my book is sometimes uh, categorized as women's fiction, and that's where I most often place it, some of my strongest readers and some of my strongest beta readers were men. You know, they loved the male characters. They wanted more of the male characters, which let me um, give voice to them as well. So I, I, I'm getting more and more hesitant to, even though we have to type things in genres, I'm getting more and more hesitant to do that. Oh, no, I agree with you. And uh, it is rough that because that's the way people shop, 
And that's the way we have to market so that people understand what is this book about? Yes. You know, and give them some sort of a clue. How about the title? Did you always have that title or did it come to you later on? Oh, but we could just do a whole thing on beta readers. <laughs> ah, the title came from the beta readers also. Oh, and the cover. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, yes. yes. You definitely have to get to come along for my next beta reader workshop. This is I, awesome. <laughs> I would be happy to. So the original title of the book was Living Lessons. I love double entendre. And there's, you know, there's poignancy in the book. There's humor. There's tons of little du double entendre things, which I just think I'm, I'm always think they're clever if someone else does them. So I try to do them as well. So the name of the book was called Living Lessons. And I thought that was wonderful because these older women were still living, they were still learning, and Jessica was learning from them. So they were living lessons. Doesn't that sound good? And it's alliterative in everything. It's alliterative, except everybody thought it sounded like a self-help book. <laughs> They thought it sounded like a self-help book. They thought it sounded preachy, like we're going to teach you all of these living lessons. And then I was just stuck. I, I really, I had been living with that title in my head for so long. Um, but then I, you know, I like the iterative process. Where the eaves came from is that these women do not believe they are at the end of their life. They are at the beginning. Ooh, they are starting okay. something. So, cool. so then I got, that I thought was really a wonderful thing that they think they're at a beginning. The, one of the women says to Jessica, as Jessica is taking their oral histories, do not, lead, read a, do not write about our lives as if we are at the end of them. Because once, a time, once upon a time, we were still girls and we think we still are. And they very much believe and feel and are at the beginning of something quite wonderful. So that's where the title came from. And then the, the cover, I was absolutely sure, as I was of so many things, of what the cover should have been. There's this wonderful sculpture garden in Norway in the Vigeland Sculpture Garden. And there are these wonderful, wonderful, all old, saggy breasts, naked old people. And they just epitomized to me how beautiful, how absolutely beautiful um, old age can be, even if I may not as be as comfortable in my old aging body. So the, the covers were these two amazing sculptures of these old naked women. And I thought they were powerful and strong and said everything I wanted to say. And the beta group thought they looked like something out of Nazi Germany. <laughs> So then you have to conceive a cover. And that's the whole thing about, I think what people don't understand so much about the publishing process. You know, it is not just the writing as you so, so know. It is what cover is gonna be, how's it gonna, what is your subtitle gonna be? And the author is so involved in it. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, you, you came to this cover over a process and these women, how many are in this beta group of yours? Well, they're, they're different ones. My original reading beta group, which gave me this fabulous quote, quilt is seven. Okay. And then I sent it out to some other authors and right. said, can you serve as my beta group? Right, right. So, so, yeah. we had more so there may have been five, five yeah. there. I love that you have them involved in the title and in the cover and development of characters. 
But that says so much for you because it says how open you are. When I was discussing beta readers with, with a group yesterday, I said that the fact is we can't be our own beta readers. Either you're in love with everything you write or many writers go through that phase of you hate everything that you write. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but whether you're loving it or hating it, you are the most non-objective person on the face of the planet about that book. Every word in my first draft was perfect. Every word. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that there's lots of other ways that authors also get at um, the right tone and the right, um, the right words, quite honestly. I have a, a really wonderful gift in that my husband's super supportive. And he'll, if I get good pages, I'll give them to him. He'll read them. And then he'll read them out loud to me. And hearing that in hearing my words in somebody else's voice are always is always helpful to me. The other thing it, it does is catch me on things that I wouldn't catch otherwise, even if I was proofreading, you know, the youngest character is 15. Well, I can tell you that at one page she was 13, then she was 15. Then I think she was 16 a page later. And it was just because I was being sloppy, but I wasn't slowing down the creative process enough to catch that. But I could if I sat and listened to the words. Absolutely. And hearing especially dialogue being spoken back tells you whether or not it is authentic and natural for that character in a way Absolutely. that it on the page does not. Absolutely. Well, I'm delighted you have a supportive spouse. Does, does he also uh, catch, you know, errant uh, commas and semicolons or is he? <laughs> oh my gosh, he is the king of commas. I have to take them out. There's a million commas. And I think the comma is kind of going away. And I, I personally like commas, but he will have, he does <laughs> not as much as my husband loves commas. <laughs> Some people just, and I, I, I was advising people about using Grammarly, for example, on their computers, Grammarly is majorly in love with the comma. Yes. Yes. If, ever, if there's a spot that just, there's a slight pause, boom, 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 boom. 172 errors. No, there's not. It's 172 <laughs> places you think you could put a comma. I know <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. It is. We haven't even talked about semicolons. Oh, well, in my, in my workshop yesterday, my comment about semicolons is if you're thinking about putting in a semicolon, don't do it. Because as a person who reads, you know, dozens of, of manuscripts every single week, I'd say 90% of the semicolons I see are misused. So unless they're, you're really yes. sure, don't do it. Well, I think they're misused. And at least for me, because I've written both fiction and nonfiction, I don't think a semicolon has any place in a fiction. I, I just, yes. I, I personally, I just can't, you know, make it two sentences. Yeah, well, that's what, I, that's what I said is quite frankly, a semicolon can always be replaced by either a period, a comma or the word and. Yes. So if you actually chose to use a semicolon, either you better have a darn good reason that, that it really improves the sentence or I think you're just being pretentious. <laughs> I love that, <laughs> I love that. But you're right, nonfiction is different. You know, that is definitely a place for it. But if I see it littered in somebody's fantasy work, I think you're just trying too hard at this point. <laughs> I love that. So tell me about the whole process from soup to nuts. What surprised you the most when you started this journey and you thought, this is what it's gonna be like. I'm gonna write this book. I've written some nonfiction. What's, what shocked you about all of this? I think that, 
two things that shocked me the most were the first, how much work it takes after publication. You know, it's not surprising that, you know, I haven't showed up on every single morning talk show, for example. You know, the amount of work it takes, even if you hire a publicist and a good publicist, you still have to be involved in the work in huge ways. The amount of time, I remember talking to someone several years ago when I was in the process, and they were talking about how you have to expect to spend at least two hours a day on social media. And I thought, that's ridiculous. Well, I probably spend at least four now. Uh, I'm not sure it's always productive time, but this comes from a woman who a year ago thought Facebook and Instagram were largely useless venues. And now I live there. So that, that amount of work post-publishing is shocking to me. The other thing is the real community that those platforms have engendered, if you will. I used to, quite humbly now, say that nobody really has Facebook friends. You know, you have people you follow, you have, no, I have developed incredible friendships as part of this. You and I have never met, but personally, but we, you, you've been my, you've had me as a guest. We clearly have a lovely opportunity and a vibe together. And I, you know, you, you're going to reach out and I'm happy to be a guest and help you out. And I, I just think this community is amazing to me. And I really encourage people to get involved prior to publication, which was something I was told and did not do, but find the places on social media where you're really at home. Mm. You know, that, that's a really important thing to me to find those other supportive groups. There's so many groups that uh, will lift you up. There are, and there are so many writer groups. And like you said, you can tell within three posts if these are your people. Yes. Or not. And there are so many of them that you can absolutely find your tribe out there on social media when if you're using it for writers groups. But what you said about promotion, and especially you are now a fiction writer coming from a nonfiction background, it's very different when you're doing nonfiction, depending on what your books were being used for, it might have been that all the work was beforehand in the writing, in the researching, the citations, etc. But depending what your book was being used for, there was an instant distribution going on for that book the moment it was done. I'm speaking about educational books and Absolutely. books and business books. And once it's done, I'm not saying there's no marketing, but very often that book is, is a useful tool for something. Whereas with fiction, people who are still in the writing phase thinking, oh, I can't wait till it's done. This is so much work. Oh, you didn't even start the work, babe. <laughs> well, well, you're very right about that. When I wrote my three educational books, they were tickets to other things. You know, I wrote a book. Now, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm a keynote speaker. Uh, there's so many um, doors that got opened. More people wanted me to write more books immediately. Uh, magazine editors wanted me to submit more articles. So really the books were a ticket to more things. And in some ways the novel is that, but I, I think that's a very good way of putting it, Stephanie, that the work really comes afterwards. Certainly there's tons of work in creating oh. the book. And, you know, all of every author I talk to loves doing research as well. You know, even if they're 
one of those people who writes by the seat of their pants. They still like to go off and go down a rabbit hole in research. But yeah, the amount of work afterwards is stunning. And keeping it fresh. My book's a year old now, and I've been really blessed to be on close to 50 interviews and blogs, et cetera. But even I sometimes go, I wake up in the morning and go, what am I going to post about today? You know? Right. Or what are you going to talk about? Gosh, I hope that Stephanie has something new to ask me. I've done 50 interviews already. I, I knew that. you would. I knew yeah. you would. But it's not easy. It is definitely not easy to, you know, put on your fresh face day after day after day and, and be just as enthusiastic about that book for new listeners and potential buyers every single day. It isn't. But, you know, that's where reviews come in. And I, I think this is a true statement, at least the authors that I have become tribe with, if you will. Most of us are pretty humble and we don't like pushing our book. We know that's part of what we have to do and we have to be enthusiastic about that. And we quite honestly have to ask people to like our pages and give us reviews. But when you get a review that just is so wonderful and on target, that, that means everything. And that's what keeps it fresh, that you know there are still new readers out there who are going to be listening to it. I actually got a review the other day, and I was really happy for the honesty. It says the book starts out slowly, but after page 30, I could not put it down. And, you know, I, and I have to say that's honest. I had reworked that first chapter time and time and time and time again. And no matter what I did, I couldn't make it that, you know, last night I went to Mandalay, that first sentence. And I think for this book, that exposition, that heavy load, if you will, exposition is critical to all of the other things that happen. So I don't think it's a mistake, but I do think it's a fair comment. And then, you know, anytime someone says, I couldn't put your book down or I don't want it to end, or is there a sequel? Those are the things that are inspiring and keep you fresh. Right, well, which brings me to the question, is there a sequel? Oh, there so needs to be. (laughs) Uh, There so needs to be. I don't see it. Now it's interesting because as probably almost every author you talk to says, you know, I really do see this as a movie or a Netflix series or an HBO series. I love it when reviewers tell me that because it says that it's not all about ego, but I can see myself helping write the screen, you know, the follow on episodes, if it ever turned into a multi-year sequence, but I don't yet see that in a book. My friend, Mary Sheriff, um, she's read, she's, Uh, writing her second novel right now. And she has a very interesting approach. She is writing the novel as a screenplay and is then going back and filling it in for the other novel-y kind of things. So maybe I need to do that. So there are more books in my head, but there is not another sequel yet. Okay. Well, we do have to wait until it materializes, but that leads me to when you were writing this, are you what, what a plotter or a pantser? Although I like some other words better. Uh, I had an author who got me into calling the, the pantsers discovery authors, that they're always just discovering rather than just flying by the seat of their pants. So well, how about you? Yes, it's, it's a funny term, isn't it? And I didn't know that term a year ago. And I remember the first time somebody asked me, I thought they said, was I a panther? And I didn't 
<laughs> embarrassing author moment. But um, I think I'm both. In the field of education, we always talk about starting with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. So if you want your kids to be able to speak fluent Spanish at the end of Spanish 4, you need to figure out what Spanish three should be and Spanish two should be and what Spanish one should be. And in Spanish one, you need to figure out where do you start the kids so that they end at a certain place. So in my book, I knew where it ended. Obviously, I didn't know all of it because my beta readers helped me tweak that. But I, I knew where it started. I, I had that essential question. You know, what do you do if you are at a turning point in your life and you are lost? And I knew where I wanted this to go for Jessica. It was the middle that was the um, unknown part to me. Okay. And so I had highlights, but no, I, I didn't always, I have a rough outline in my head. Gotcha. Now, when you're working in that no man's land, mm -hmm. shall we say, um, I'm kind of envisioning you're sitting at your computer and you can do the beginning and maybe you can do the end. But now you have to delve into, say, chapter two or three and you don't have a plan. Well, it's funny because I actually did write the first two chapters and then the last chapter. I had a feeling. <laughs> and oh, then the mixed it all up, but that's it. Right, they did. Well, actually, chap what is chapter now? one now was chapter three, and then you know how that goes. I know how that goes. Okay, so, yeah, and yeah, you're, like you said, you have to be open to it. But then I think you get into a rhythm, and one thing does flow upon the next. And we know that in a chapter, you should have something that picks up from before, and there should be some sort of challenge. And then it, there's an up and down. And at the end of the chapter, there's got to be that other challenge so that you have that page turning, right? So I think that I always tried to do that, even if that, didn't, that chapter didn't always wind up that way in a final product. Mm -hmm. I left myself with the question of what would happen next. Awesome. But such great food for thought for others who are saying, I don't know how to write what I don't, you know, where it's going. It's going to come. It's going to come. But what do you do if you could be any place in the world to get those creative juices flowing? We, we can just pick you up, Grace, and put you in a writer's retreat right now. Where is that? Oh, it would be actually on a plot of land overlooking the Chesapeake Bay, which is where my book takes place. And it would be out just overlooking the bay. Ah. Or probably any body of water. Okay, so you're a water girl and you like to be on site. Is there some place that you'd like to write a book, not a sequel, is maybe something totally different? Is there something yet to explore? In terms of a, a topic? Topic, location. If we're not talking about a sequel, is there something else? Yes, I think that uh, my next book that may happen takes place in Cleveland, Ohio. And although I visited it, I don't know it well. So I need to go spend some time in Cleveland. And then the other thing is one of my educational books is called Battling the Hamster Wheel and it's strategies around high school improvement and how frequently we get stuck in a rut of just keep on doing the same old, same old. And there's been some interest in me creating a series of other Battling the Hamster Wheel books. And I'm, I'm toying with that, so. Oh. Okay. Now, why Cleveland, Ohio? I think for me, 
my brother lives there, but really that's where my grandmother emigrated to when she came from Germany. And she came at a very young age with her sister. I think she was 16. And I just can't imagine what that would have been like to get on a steamer in steerage mm-hmm. uh, and come across with $16 in your pocket and get to New York and then suddenly go to Cleveland, Ohio. And, and you know, she, she lived uh, in a small apartment and then she lived behind, when she married my grandfather, they lived behind a plumbing store. So I, I wanna explore that. And I visited Cleveland before the pandemic and it is an amazing city of firsts. I had so, no idea. Oh, it's the first um, it's the first city in the country that had organized mail delivery. It's the first city that had traffic lights. It used to be the car capital of the world. Mm. Uh, so there's all these little historical pieces um, that I think would be fascinating to weave into that immigration story. Love that. Okay, who's going to play your characters in the movie? Oh, I was going to have up on my website, and I do have different things on the website. One of the things I wish I had on my website, and I should just take the time to do it, is for book clubs that would say, who would you cast as the characters? Um, The oldest male character's name is Tobias Thatcher, and he's 90 plus. He's African-American. He's a medical doctor, and it's his land that all the characters live on. And as I wrote him, I just kept hearing Morgan Freeman in my head over and over and over again. And um, that would be my dream. And I can tell you, he did hold my book. Now, he may have held my book and put it down immediately, but I know he has touched my book. So I, I, that would be my dream. But there are so many, you know, there are certainly very, very skilled other African-American actors who could play him, but he was the voice I heard anyway. And then I think, you know, the character of Jessica, there are so many women of that late 50s into their 60s characters. Gina Davis, for example, she would make a very good Jessica, but she just did an article several weeks ago that talked about how there were not enough roles for women of a certain age. So I I would be so happy and honored with any of the um, skilled actresses to take on that role of Jessica. And I love that I've got, you know, 70, 80 and 90 year old women too. And I would love, I would just love for this to come to life, not only certainly for myself, but for the gift of us seeing Uh, such skilled actresses on the stage at so many ages. Love that. Love that. Now, as a reader, because I presume you like to read as well. Yes. Who is your favorite author to read? Oh, you know, I might have had a favorite author before I got into this (laughs) author community. I have some longstanding ones, Daphne du Maurier, you know, just an all-time favorite. Anna Sewell, who wrote Black Beauty, the first book I ever really fell in love with all on my own. But I don't know that I had a, have a favorite author right now. Uh, I, I love the book Woman of, Tra- of Troublesome Creek by Kim Michelle, and I'm going to forget her last name. That's a fabulous, fabulous book because I like to learn as well. And that's a perfect book, The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek, because not only does it talk about 
women in Appalachia who deliver books literally with a donkey. I just a whole mobile library on hooves, if you will. But it's about people who were physically blue. They had a genetic uh I don't want to say disorder because that's not right. They had a genetic arrangement that made their skin blue. And this is something I knew nothing about. So I love learning and I love learning when it's not shoved at me. Mm. You you know, it's interwoven in the book. And I tried to do that a lot in my book. There's a character who has brain cancer. And I went out and did a little bit of research on it. And one of the treatments for brain cancer is to inject the polio virus into the person who's suffering from brain cancer. And it works, not in all cases, obviously. But I loved throwing in those little factoids. Yeah, that's something I never knew. And, And I'm with you. I love learning about things without it being shoved at me. If I wanted to read nonfiction, I would. Right. You know, there's something to be said for not doing that. Well, if we can't name a favorite book now, how about as a child? What was that first book that got you saying, I wanna be a writer? I think it might've been Black Beauty. And Anna Soul has a great story about that. So first of all, I don't know how old I was, maybe nine or 10, maybe. And my brother, Bob, gave me this book on Christmas. And I remember not going to Christmas dinner. How my mother ever let me do that? Um, We're a big Italian family. And I just remember curled up on the couch, not being able to put that book down. And I think, oh, I'm going to say nine. I'm not going to remember the date. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed now, but she was only alive. She died within a year of it coming out, but she knew it was popular. And now it's always listed as one of the top 10 children's books of all time. So that's probably the first book I fell in love with. And then I would say Rebecca by by Daphne de Murier is the first time I fell in love with writing, uh, reading a book with someone. My mom said, did you want to read this book with me? And the two of us got separate copies out of the library and I just couldn't wait to talk to her about it. How wonderful. What a great mother-daughter activity. Oh, it was wonderful. And then we read all the other Daphne du Maurier books too. So, And hopefully after today, we can get some mothers and daughters perhaps reading The Eves together. It would be wonderful. Thank you. That would be absolutely wonderful. I can, maybe I'll have to send a copy to my mother and my daughter of this. Oh, Thank nice. Started. Uh, finally, some words of uh, advice or tips, wisdom, people who are starting out this journey as a writer themselves. You know, it's funny, I'm often asked to give advice, and and I think I've said several things today already about like getting a Facebook group, etc. But I think that for me, it it, I'm always hesitant to give it, by the way. (laughs) But um, I think for me, it's know why you're writing. Mm. And that was something my publisher said to me early on. And I kept on saying, well, you know, I just have a story. I want to write it. And he kept pushing back. Why do you want to write it? Why do you want to write it? Uh, I think that probably most of the authors you talk to will say you're not going to get rich on your novel, um, probably unless it gets turned into that movie or Netflix or whatever. Um, So I think you have to know why you're writing. And part of that is what will success mean to you? is success getting it out the door and then having to be able to physically hold your book in the hand, then that's great. Is it to have a, a, an Instagram presence or a podcast presence? Is it to have that ticket to something else? I think knowing why you're writing, and that may change 
But I think initially you have to know what is your goal in doing this? Oh, fabulous. You're so right. I'm a big one for if you know your why, it can get you through the dark days. Yes. And that's so much uh, more valuable as uh, a tip, shall we say, than, you know, all the tools that go into it is just really doing a little self-reflection before you start. Would you change a thing about your journey? Oh, I probably wish I knew more about social media ahead of, but you know, there's been so much good that's come out of it. And I'm a big one on not looking back and having regrets. You know, certainly there could have been different paths I could have taken, but no, I think if we could live a regret-free life, that would be a really great goal. I agree with you. Well, I've been delighted to have you on and uh, we'll be following your star. Um, Grace is available for book clubs and all sorts of things. She would love to have you. As I mentioned, uh, gracesalmon.net is where you can find her and find um, signing up and different giveaways and things like that. Um, and please do. You definitely want to watch this rising star. Thank you so much for joining me. Stephanie, it was an incredible pleasure. And again, thanks for all you do out here for readers and writers. My pleasure.